Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. All right, we'll jump into the message now. And uh, we're working through the book of Luke, 24 chapters in the book of Luke. And last week I, uh, I uh, preached on Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10, and we looked at offense and forgiveness. And uh, generally what I've been doing in this series is every week we take on a, on a new chapter. Uh, this week I'm going to break my rule. I'm going to do one more in chapter 17 because there's a whole section at the end of it, the second half of the passage, that I've, I've just I've, I've felt really passionate about and keen to preach. It's something that doesn't often get preached uh, in churches these days, especially in our country. And, and uh, I just think it's something that's so important to preach. And so I'm going to preach on verses 20 to 33, and it's the coming of Jesus' kingdom. And so let me read it to you. I'm going to read you 14 verses here, a good chunk. And let's hear what Jesus is saying to us here today. Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected in this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. All right? And so let's work our way through this lengthy passage here, verse by verse, Jesus and the coming of his kingdom. And so we go back to verses 20 and 21, and the Pharisees ask him, when is the kingdom of God coming? So when the kingdom of God would come? And he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, this is one of those passages that actually has a huge amount of influence on our perception of Jesus' kingdom, even though most of us don't realize it. This is, not a, this is not a passage that most of us have memorized. This is not a passage that most people have up on a plaque in their entryway or something. And yet, this is a passage that has had a huge influence on Western Christianity and the way we view the kingdom of Jesus. Even though many of us uh, don't know it off by heart or don't consciously think about this verse very much, it has influenced us a lot. And the way it has influenced us is that this passage has been used by many teachers and authors and things to, to spiritualize the kingdom of, of God, to spiritualize the kingdom of God. Many people have used this passage to teach a perception that is out there in Western Christianity, which is that Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, an invisible spiritual kingdom. 
And there's a couple of things in this passage that seem to teach it, and it's really important that we see what this passage is actually saying. And so one of the phrases there Jesus says to the Pharisees, so they ask him, when is the kingdom of God uh, coming? And he says to them, first of all, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So right off the bat there, it sure seems like he's teaching them that the kingdom of God is an invisible uh, kingdom. And this is, an, is, a no, is a notion and an idea that has been reinforced in the last couple of, or the last number of decades by the NIV translation in particular. And if I could just take a time out and just say this, I, I just, I'm going to show you the NIV translation in just a moment, but just so you know, I am not against the NIV translation. It's a wonderful translation. It is trustworthy. I recommend it to people. You know, anybody who wants a good Bible to read, the NIV is a great translation. But here's something you need to understand. No translation is perfect. I've come personally, I have a personal preference, I've come over the last few years to really enjoy the ESV translation, but that's not because I think it's the only good one. I just personally like it. It's not perfect either. The only perfect word of God is the original inspired word of God that he gave to the authors who wrote it. The goal of the translations, this is really important that you understand this, the goal of the translations is to get as close back to the originals as possible. And one of our blessings in the English language is that we have many good translations to choose from. The NIV is excellent. The ESV is is excellent. The New King James, the NASB, even the NLT is very good. It's a dynamic translation. I will just say this one thing. If you're using the message, the message is not a translation, just so you know. It's a paraphrase. And it's not, you shouldn't just have a message. You shouldn't do your devos and Bible study all in the message. You should use one of the real translations. But all the real translations are excellent in the English language. Okay? So I'm going to point something out now in the NIV, but that's not because I'm against the NIV or you should, should dump your NIVs. Not at all. Every translation has its issues. Okay? But the NIV has reinforced this idea in this passage that Jesus is spiritualizing his kingdom. And let's look at the, uh, at the NIV translation. The NIV translation says this, once having been asked by the Pharisees, and again, the NIV has been one of the most popular translations ever in the last century. Tens of millions of Christians have used it. And that's, again, why this passage has become so influential. But when the kingdom of God would come, and Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And lots of people have looked at this and gone, okay, so Jesus is teaching that his kingdom is different. Jesus is correcting the Pharisees because the Pharisees had this mistaken notion. That's what people read this as. That's what a lot of Western Christians think Jesus is correcting a wrong notion of the Pharisees. That they had a notion based on the Old Testament, silly them. That they had a notion based on the Old Testament prophets that, Jesus, that the Messiah would set up a real kingdom on the earth, a physical kingdom, and he would be a real king. And so Jesus is fixing that erroneous interpretation, and he's telling them, I'm not, I don't have a physical kingdom. Mine is a spiritual kingdom that is inside of you. Okay? Now, first of all, before I even look at that, because you can already see where I'm going with this, that that is most certainly not what Jesus is teaching here. But let me just stop again for a moment, just to make sure you do know what I'm saying. Most certainly, when you give your life to Jesus, his spirit comes to live inside of you. Amen? Amen. Most, that, I mean, that is one of the most massively awesome truths in all all of the gospel. I mean, uh, Romans 8, verse 13, uh, if he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. Okay, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. Colossians 1 verse 27, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
You know, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22, God has placed his seal on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a pledge of what is to come. Over and over and over and over again, we find in the New Testament and in the Old Testament prophets this glorious truth that when we give our lives to Christ, his spirit literally comes to dwell inside of us. That's amazing. But do you know that nowhere does the Bible teach that Jesus' kingdom is inside of us? Okay, what would that even mean? Now again, certainly, okay, sure, there's a bit of an analogy there. If his spirit dwells in us and the fruit of the spirit is in us, sure, you know, you can extrapolate that and kind of, maybe there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is inside of us, but that is not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is not telling the Pharisees, whoa, 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 you guys in your physical real kingdoms, I'm not the king of a real kingdom, I'm the king of an invisible kingdom. And my kingdom has come inside of you. First of all, just look who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. If any of them had the kingdom of God inside of them, it isn't them. He's certainly not telling the Pharisees, hey, you guys, the kingdom of God is inside of you. He isn't saying that to them. They of anyone do not have his kingdom inside of them. So this translation uh, gives us really a wrong impression of what Jesus is actually saying. So I'm going to go back to the ESV. And again, I'm not against the NIV. This is just one passage. There's problem passages in the ESV, okay? Every translation, none of them is totally perfect. The goal of all of them is to get as close back to the originals as possible. But if we go back to the ESV, which is a better translation in this case, okay, we see at the bottom what Jesus is really saying, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, okay? So the kingdom of God is not within you, it's in the midst of you. So what on earth is Jesus talking about? The kingdom of God is in the midst of you, okay? Well, again, what's the context? Pharisees are talking to Jesus. What you have to see in this passage, in these verses, is the intense irony of what's going on. You have to actually look and see the intense irony that is going on in this passage. The Pharisees are talking, who are they talking to? They're talking to the very God who made them. Think about the irony in this passage. They're talking to Yahweh himself, the one who authored their scriptures, the one who created the whole universe, the one who is the Messiah, and it totally is going over their heads. They don't believe it. God himself is right in their midst, literally in their midst, and they're around him, talking to him and testing him. And they say to the king himself, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And the irony is just thick, and I think Jesus is just absolutely enjoying it, and he says, look, it's not coming in ways that can be observed. The kingdom of God is right in the middle of you. What's he saying? I'm in the middle of you. The king is in the middle of you. He's not saying... By the way, I'm not the king of a real kingdom. I'm the king of an invisible kingdom, and it's inside of you. Well, it certainly wasn't in the Pharisees anyway. He's saying, you guys are missing the whole thing. You're looking for the kingdom of God, and God is right in this group right now in the middle of you talking to you. So this is not a general... See, we've misunderstood these verses. We've thought that Jesus is giving us sort of general teachings about the kingdom of God. This is not Jesus giving us... 2,000 years later, general teaching about what the kingdom of God is like. This is Jesus having a specific conversation with the Pharisees with the irony dripping everywhere saying, the king is right in the middle of you talking to you right now. So yes, Jesus' spirit is inside of us, but now in the West, we've turned this whole thing into a thing that Jesus' kingdom is this kind of spiritual, invisible kingdom inside of us. And again, the fruit of the spirit and the spirit is inside of us. But when the Bible talks about the kingdom of Jesus, 
It's a real kingdom, and our hope is in a real king and a real kingdom that's going to be here on earth. Okay, that's our hope. What would that even mean if Jesus' kingdom was only in our hearts? What do we have to look forward to? Jesus' kingdom is a real kingdom, and he's a real king, amen? So you say, well, what's with that whole thing there? The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Doesn't, don't the Old Testament prophets and the, and the New Testament, doesn't it talk many times? Like Jesus at his second coming, there's going to be like tons of signs. I mean, there's, a, there's more than 150 chapters in this book. Huge chunk of this book is about Jesus coming back to earth and setting up a real kingdom on the earth. And aren't there tons of signs in there? Absolutely there is. So why does he say the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed? And the answer is, again, because he's talking to the Pharisees. And they're missing it. They were expecting that when the Messiah would come, he was going to conquer the Roman Empire, he was going to conquer the world. And actually, their expectation was correct. They just didn't believe he was the Messiah, and they didn't know the whole part about the Messiah having to come to die first. So they were expecting the Messiah to do miracles. And yes, Jesus was doing miracles, like healing people and stuff, but they were expecting, they just attributed all of that to the devil. They were expecting him to do more miracles on, the, on par with like Moses parting the Red Sea and calling down fire on Herod's palace and literally conquering the world. Those were the signs they wanted to see. Those were the big signs they were looking for. And Jesus is sitting right in the midst of them and he's saying, it's not coming in ways that can be observed. There were all kinds of signs at Jesus' first coming, but they were subtle enough. You ever think about that? All the signs at Jesus' first coming, the virgin birth, the star, the healings, they were real signs, and yet they were subtle enough that only those with good hearts could receive them. Isn't that true? So many people at Jesus' first coming, many, many people missed the first coming. Many people didn't receive it. Many people didn't hear about it. I mean, he only was in Israel there. Most of the world didn't even hear about it at the time. Many people missed Jesus' first coming. He's not coming in ways that can be observed. Not that obvious. His second coming, not a single person will ever miss. Not even those who don't believe in him. And that is really, really important. And so now we start to move into the next part of this passage. So these first two verses, these first couple of verses here in this passage, Jesus is not giving us general teaching about the kingdom of God. It's invisible. It's inside your hearts. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he's saying, I'm here in the middle of you. But now in the rest of this passage, he's going to turn the conversation to the disciples because they also have wrong expectations. See, the thing you have to understand is that the disciples and the Pharisees actually believed the same about the Messiah. Did you know that? They believed the same about the Messiah. And they believed correctly about the Messiah because they believed, based on the prophets, which are all going to come true, that the Messiah was going to set up his physical kingdom on the earth. Okay? Now, where the disciples were ahead of the Pharisees was they, they knew that Jesus was that Messiah. So they were light years ahead of the Pharisees. But they believed the same thing as the Pharisees. When it comes to the Messiah, he's going to set up a real kingdom on earth. At that time, the nation of Israel is going to be blessed. All the nations are going to come here, and sickness and death and all that's going to be gone. That's what they believed, just like the Pharisees, and they believed correctly. But they believed, unlike the Pharisees, they had good hearts and they had received what God had sent. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. But now here's the problem with the disciples' expectations. They expected Jesus to set up his kingdom any day. So much stuff in the Gospels makes more sense when you understand that the disciples were the entire time expecting Jesus to set up his kingdom shortly. In fact, the book of Acts, if you want to write this down, do some study this week on your own. Read chapter 1 of the book of Acts. In chapter 1 of the book of Acts, 
the last conversation that the disciples have with Jesus just before he goes back to heaven shows what they've been thinking the whole time. The last conversations that, that the disciples have with Jesus before he goes back to heaven, you know what they ask him? Are you at this time now, you can almost see the word finally in there, finally going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they asking? They've been with Jesus for three and a half years, and in all that time, he has never taken away their belief that he's going to set up a real kingdom. And they think he's going to do it now. Are you now going to do it? And of course, he then says, it's not for you to know times or seasons. And then he leaves. There's going to be a big gap. And so in the rest of this passage, these disciples, I mean, I can only imagine them sometimes talking amongst each other, thinking, saying to themselves, you know, I wonder when he's going to get through this whole healing and preaching phase and get on with taking over the world. You know, and this is why every time he would talk to them and say, I gotta die, I gotta die, I gotta die. And we're all reading it going, are these guys dense or what? It's just over their heads, over their heads, over their heads. The reason is, we are dense like that too whenever something is just completely outside of our paradigm. Their paradigm was the moment they understood him to be the Messiah, they're like, this is awesome, he's setting up his kingdom here on earth. And he would say other stuff and they're like, he must be joking, he must be speaking in parables, I don't get that, we're gonna leave that alone. But in this passage now, he first talks to the Pharisees and just says, the kingdom of God's in the midst of you because I'm in the midst of you. Now he's going to talk to the disciples and he's got to change their expectations about how quick this, the kingdom of God is coming. And so we read in verse 22, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Boy, that's ominous. Wait a minute. He, he, you're leaving? What are you talking about? You're here now. You're going to set up your kingdom on the earth. What do you mean a day is coming when we're going to wish that we were back here when you were with us? Are you leaving us? Why? Things are going to get worse. We thought things were going to get better. But you, he's telling them right now, the day is coming when you're going to wish I was around again. The day is going to come when you're going to wish you could go back in time to right now when I was with you. But that day is coming. When you're going to wish that you could see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it, things are going to get worse for you, not better. Verse 23, and they will say to you, look here, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, he's warning his disciples here, people are going to claim that I've come back. People are going to claim to be the Messiah. Others are going to, are going to claim to be me himself, to, to be me, come back, or, or others. There's going to be all kinds of false prophets and date setting and all sort of stuff. But he says, don't you worry about that, he says, because when I come back the next time, this time when I came back, lots of people missed it. I didn't come in ways that could be observed. But the next time I come back, it's going to be like lightning across the whole sky. Everybody in the whole world, there's no missing it. See, one of the things you have to understand, those of you who know the book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church because they're scared. People have been teaching them that Jesus came back and they missed it. Luke is writing his gospel at the same time that that is happening in the Thessalonian church. And so already at that time, there was this fear. What if we miss Jesus coming back? And Luke goes back and he remembers this message of Jesus's. And Jesus says, my first coming was missed by a lot of people. But my second coming will be like lightning from one side of the sky to the other. You cannot miss it. Even unbelievers and those who hate me won't miss it because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. So at his second coming, nobody misses it. But there's going to be a gap because there's going to be some hard times before we get there. From one side of the sky to the other. 
verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And again, they're shaking their heads. What is this about suffering? He keeps telling them, it's not now. My kingdom is a real kingdom. It's not just a spiritual kingdom. It's a real kingdom, but it's not now. First, I have to suffer. First, you guys are going to have to suffer. It's not now. It's a real kingdom. Everything you're expecting is real. The only thing he's correcting is there's a gap, a really big gap. And you know why the gap is there? The Great Commission has to be finished. That's, that's the thing. That's why he gives him the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He could have come and just set up his kingdom the first time. But no, no, no. He had to die for our sins, and then he had to give the whole world a chance to respond to that gift. Amen. And that's why he said, I want you to go out and make, not converts, but disciples of every ethnic group, Matthew 28. And in Matthew 24, verse 14, and when this good news has gone to all the ethnic groups, then the end will come. There had to be a gap. Jesus desperately wants to set up his kingdom here on the earth, but there had to be a gap because every ethnic group in the world first has to hear, and there has to be people in Jesus' family from every ethnic group before he's going to come, come back and set up his physical kingdom here on the earth. And the disciples and the Pharisees couldn't see that. And just a rabbit trail here for just a moment, because I always get passionate about this subject, but just before we go and finish this passage, one of the most amazing things is we are living right now in a very unique generation. We are living in the first, absolutely the first, we can say this with absolute confidence, we are the first generation in all of Christian history when the Great Commission could actually be completed in our lifetime. Amen. Did you know that? I, I mean, for, for centuries, there's been date setting and different things. People have thought Jesus is coming back here, people are coming back. It's because they didn't actually look, read their Bibles. He says, I'm not coming back until all the nations have heard. And we haven't been anywhere close to comp completing the Great Commission for 2,000 years. Did you know that? We haven't been anywhere close until now. And I can show, I could send you all kinds of stats. I've done tons of research on this. I teach it every year at school ministers and I update the numbers every couple of years. But, but right now, if you look not just at the, you know, wacky organizations here, there on the internet, but if you look at the, you know, the top three, four mission uh, research organizations right now, they are all saying the same thing. Somewhere within the next 10 to 25 years, we could see the Great Commission completed. Sometime in the next 10 to 25 years. Now, that doesn't mean it absolutely will be completed in the next 10 to 25 years. Maybe things will happen in the world that will slow that down. Maybe it'll be 30 or 35. I don't know. On the other hand, maybe things will happen that will speed it up. Amen? But we are the first generation. Do you know that right now as I speak, there are 2,200 uh, translation missions projects going on right now to some of the last unreached people groups in the world as we speak. Call to All, which is one of the big Great Commission alliances. It involves a number of big, trusted uh, evangelical mission uh, organizations and stuff. They are predicting that by 2020, uh, all of the last projects will be underway for reaching the last unreached tongues and tribes and nations on the earth in terms of translating the Bible into their language. We are living in unique, unprecedented times. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, there's a big gap because we've got to reach the ethnic groups. We've got to reach all the nations. We're not living on the far side of that gap. We're living in the first generation where we could actually see it happen in our lifetimes, which means we could actually see Jesus come back in our lifetime, which is absolutely an astounding, astonishing thing, which brings us to the next part of this passage because 
In this next part of the passage, Jesus shifts gears one more time. And his whole point here, first he tells the Pharisees, I am the king and I'm right in the middle of you. Then he tells his disciples, it's not right now. And then the third part of this passage, he goes on and he says, but here's what you need to know, those of you who are living in the gap before the real kingdom comes. Don't get complacent and don't fall into unbelief. You must keep a sense of urgency because when I come back, it's going to be sudden. Judgment will be sudden and my return and the setting up of my kingdom will be sudden. And so he says this in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. So Jesus is he's taking us back into the scriptures and he's saying, if you want to know what the days of my return is, are going to be like, they're going to be like the days of Noah. Well, in what, in what way? What's he talking about? Is there going to be a big flood again? Should we all be out there building ships? Like, in what ways are the days of Jesus' return the same as the days of Noah? Well, he's going to tell us now in what way they're the same. And he says this. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So what happened in the days of Noah? Well, God came to Noah and he said, cataclysmic judgment is coming. I'm going to send a massive flood. It's going to wipe everybody out. And I want you to build a boat. Now, can you imagine the urgency you would feel if God showed up to you one day and said, I'm going to, I'm going to wipe out you know, all of Steinbeck and Mitchell and Blumenort with a flood, okay? And you need to build a big boat, okay? Then there's urgency, okay? So Noah has urgency. That first day, they're, they're drawing up plans. Him and the boys are out in the bush. They're cutting down big, big trees. Urgency. I mean, you just got a word from God. Cataclysmic judgment. We're working hard. We got to get this thing built. And they've got urgency that first day, that first week, that first month, that first year. They're just working feverishly and also preaching. The New Testament, Peter actually tells us Noah was preaching that whole time. He wasn't just building. He was telling all of his neighbors, you got to get right with God. This is what we're doing. Judgment is coming, okay? But then building the boat took a long, long, long time. Did you know that? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how long it took, so we can't know for sure, but there's little clues here and there. Uh, some people, based on some of those clues, estimate it probably took somewhere between 50 and 75 years. Again, we don't know for sure. Maybe it was less Maybe, maybe it was more. But probably this whole thing took a number of decades. Okay, it could have been 50 years, 70 years. Could, could be somewhere in there. Now think about that. God gives you a word. Cataclysmic judgment coming. Work, 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 work. Cataclysmic judgment's coming. Cataclysmic judgment's coming. But then every day just feels so normal. Isn't that true? Like you're telling your neighbors, cataclysmic judgment's coming. Are you? Come on. How can cataclysmic judgment be coming when there's long lineups at Timmy's today? Everybody's still going, whatever they did back then. How, how can cataclysmic judgment be coming? The sun came up today again. I got a wedding this, this, this summer. My, one of my kids is getting married. I've got this. I've got plans. I'm building a cottage Cataclysmic judgment can't be coming. Life is too normal. Like certainly there'd be some kind of warning. And, and do you think that Noah must ever have wrestled with some doubts? Like do you think? I, I'm sure he must have wrestled with some doubts. 
Like God gives you a word, cataclysmic judgment's coming. And now you go a year, two years, five years, a decade, a couple of decades. That word is going further and further and further into the rearview mirror. And your friends and your neighbors are all carrying on as they always have. They have not repented. Nothing has changed. Am I the only one who has to do all this sacrifice, building this boat all by myself, worshiping my God, preaching and being mocked? This doesn't make any sense. And everything's so normal. In fact, did you know there's actually a psychological term for this? I've read about this before, but I looked it up again this week, and you can too, but it's called, psychologists actually call it the normalcy bias. The normalcy bias. It's actually a, a psychological term. The fact that our brains are wired in such a way that it is almost impossible for us, when everything just looks like it's going on as it always has, it's almost impossible for us to believe or to make ourselves believe that disaster is around the corner. In fact, they've studied this during big disasters, and they estimate that in many disasters, up to 70% of people are affected by normalcy bias, which means they're unprepared, and it doesn't matter how many warnings you give them, they're still not prepared enough because everything is just so nice, and everything's going on, and I got my job, and I'm busy. <laughs> Judgment could not be around the corner. Everything is not about to change. It's hard for our brains to grasp when everything's going well, that things are just about to radically change forever. That's the normalcy bias. And so Jesus says, you've got to watch out for the normalcy bias because this is what happened in the days of Noah and it's going to be the exact same, he says, in the days before I return. Because in the days of Noah, everybody, they had long even given up even laughing at Noah anymore because the joke had gotten so old. And they were eating and drinking and marrying and the world had gone on for years and years and years and decades and there was no judgment and they gave no thought to what Noah was doing anymore. And then in one day, the ark was completed, the animals were all in the ark and not one of them had listened to Noah's message and Noah and his family went into that ark alone when God would have saved others if they had listened and God shut the doors of that ark and in one day, God saved that family and destroyed the rest. In one day, it went from absolutely normal to absolutely wiped out. And Jesus says, just like in the days of Noah, it will be in the days of the Son of Man. And you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, well, I think you're probably, maybe you're just making too much of just one little passage. Actually, this matters to Jesus so much. Whenever Jesus really is strong about something, he repeats it. And so even if you think, well, maybe you're just making too big a deal of this days of Noah thing. Jesus said, just in case you think I'm making too big of a deal, deal of it, let me repeat myself again. And he says this in the very next verses. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. It's going to be like the days of Noah. And then he says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, and I want you to notice again the suddenness. There was no lead up. There was no, you know, lots and lots of warning and stepping up, stepping up, and everybody could see something bad is about to happen. No, everything. They were starting businesses. They were building homes. They were planning vacations until the day that Lot went out of Sodom. And on that day, on that day, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. When Jesus returns the next time, it's going to be lightning across the sky and cataclysmic judgment. 
This is not me preaching this. By the way, this is why it's so important for us to read and study and preach the Word of God. One of the things that bothers me, annoys me, and sometimes maybe in my more fleshly moments disgusts me is how many churches nowadays, they have this whole thing of like we're in their, in their goal to be friendly to seekers, they don't actually preach the Bible. If you don't preach, I mean, we do practical messages too, but if you don't preach through books of the Bible, how do you know your preacher isn't just making up what he's passionate about and just preaching it? Three steps to a better you. Five steps to a happier life. Where does Jesus preach that? And so we have this picture of Jesus, this nice guy, this Santa Claus, and praise God, he's gracious and merciful and loving, but people don't preach his messages. I'm just preaching to you his message. And he says, when I come back, it's like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Cataclysmic, sudden judgment. Cataclysmic, sudden judgment. And I can't think of a more relevant to talk, topic to talk about right now than this very passage when we're living in the generation that could see the Great Commission completed in our day. And then he says this in verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Again, urgency. And then he says this, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So Jesus gives us this stern warning. He says, remember Lot's wife. Go back to the stories of the Old Testament. You know, churches nowadays are writing off the Old Testament. Bizarre. Jesus preached the Old Testament. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Amen? So Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Well, what happened in the story of Lot's wife and Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It's a, it's a famous story. And most of us know some of the basic details, but some of the details in there that Jesus wants us to mine out, I, I don't know if many of us are that familiar with. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. It starts in Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, God is having lunch with Abraham, okay? The angel of the Lord is having lunch with Abraham. And it's one of the most amazing stories in the whole Bible, because you see God's heart, and he wants, to, he wants to have fellowship with us. And so at the end of the meal, him and Abraham go for a walk. And during this walk, Abraham, our God, this is just how God is. Think about it, that God likes to tell us his secrets. And God talks to Abraham, and he says, I want to tell you something, Abraham. I want to tell you something that's on my heart. And he says to Abraham, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Can you believe Abraham was so close to God that God would let him in on what he was doing? Then when God tells Abraham that, Abraham goes, oh boy, my nephew lives there. I don't want my nephew to get hurt, right? And then in this story, even more incredible, we see the power of intercession. And Abraham begins to intercede for the city and intercede for his nephew Lot and his family. And as a result of Abraham, by the way, those of you who have any doubt that prayer makes a difference when you're praying for lost family members or, or people in your life, this Genesis 18 is awesome because God is absolutely convinced. He, he will not change his mind that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It's too wicked. But as a result of Abraham's prayers, God sends two angels to Sodom to rescue Lot and his family. And the next part of the story is pretty famous. We know that part. The two angels come to Lot's house, but then all the wicked men of Sodom come to the house, and they want to assault the two angels. They don't know they're angels. They just think they're men. 
course, the angels strike them blind. And we'll pick up the story there because there's some really interesting stuff here that I think many of us are not quite aware of. So the, 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 the angels strike all the men of Sodom blind. And, and now the men, or the angels, said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. That's the normalcy bias. They're like, our future father-in-law is cracked. If his daughters weren't so gorgeous, I think we'd be out, okay? What are you, are you nuts? How, Dad, you know, here, Lot, Mr. Lot, whatever they call, called him at this point before they were married. Mr. Lot, how, what do you mean judgment is coming on the city? Look, we got plans. We got the wedding plan. We got the, we're putting up the decorations tomorrow. We got the chocolates already made, right? I mean, we got vacation. How could judgment come? We just made an investment. I mean, you and us, we just went on this investment on that fourplex over there. Surely judgment isn't about to wipe this all out. He must be joking. He's having panic attacks because of the wedding. Two daughters at once, that's a little crazy, right? So he must be jesting. No, judgment's not coming. Normalcy bias. Judgment couldn't be coming now. There'd be some kind of a warning. Lot is the warning. But now I want you to see it's not just his sons-in-law. I want you now to see the rest of this, which is the part I wanted to point out. Remember Lot's wife, verse 15. As morning dawned, they're still there. Why are they still there? If two angels came to your house and said, I'm about to wipe out Steinbach, you need to get out. What do, you, do, you, do you wait around till morning? Like, if you do, wow, okay? You're braver than I am. It's pack the kids into the van and get out. Fire is coming down. They've already see the, seen these angels do a miracle in, in, in getting the guys all blind. They know that these guys are for real. Judgment is coming. They're urgent. Morning dawns. They're still dawdling. Then it says this, the angels urged, they're urging Lot now saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. <laughs> Lot, are you crazy? He lingered. Why would he linger, right? It's easy for us, though, to read these stories and go, what is wrong with these people? But the fact of the matter is these people are no different than we are. That's the normalcy bias. We just, there's no way judgment is coming. And you know what Lot's having a hard time doing? He's having a hard time letting go. I can't, I just, it's a new truck. I can't leave that behind. I can't, I just fixed up the house. I just planted a few trees. I can't leave this all behind. I can't leave my life behind. Surely, no, oh, judgment can't be coming. Really? Yes? Come on, they're saying. But he lingered. But he lingered. We do the same thing. We read God's word. An important thing here that we have to understand is, is our sense of urgency going to be determined by our feelings or by the word of God? That's really the challenge. Are we going to go out there and the world has no sense of urgency about impending judgment? Are we going to go out there and go, you know what, nobody else is feeling it. It certainly can't be true. Or are we going to look at what Jesus is saying? But he lingered. But look at this. So the man sees them. This is the power of Abraham's prayers. Abraham prayed. I think otherwise the angels would have just left. You know what? We tried to save him. We couldn't. But God's like, Abraham prayed, drag them out. Okay? Because look at this. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. 
You're getting saved whether you like it or not. <laughs> they seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. Amen. Is God not good? Amen. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. The sons-in-law, too bad. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Now, I, I cut out a few verses just for the sake of time. Well, if you read the next few verses, Lot, it, this guy's just unbelievable. He basically tells the angels, I'm out of shape. I can't make it to the hills. Could we just stop in the city right here? There's like a little town there. It'd be like fire and sulfur about to rain down on Steinbach, and you're like, you know what? I don't want to go all the way to Neverville. Can we just go to, to Mitchell? <laughs> like, do you realize how close you are, Lot? And the angels are like, oh. Okay, fine, we'll make sure that, that town doesn't get burned up, okay? And they had to do extra miracles there to keep him safe afterwards. He was keeping them real busy. But anyway, now we get to the part, because Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, right? And we all know what happens now, verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, a lot of people read this passage, and we go, that seems a bit severe. Like, that seems a bit severe. She looks over her her shoulder as she's running and God turns her into a pillar of salt, that seems a little unfair. Let me tell you something. This has nothing to do with she was running and looking over her shoulder. I'm sure they were all running and looking over their shoulders as they ran, okay? She didn't get turned into a pillar of salt by God because she just looked over her shoulder as she ran. She got turned into a pillar of salt because she wasn't running. Looking back there, it's not talking about, I looked over my shoulder as I ran. It's talking about she's still lingering. The rest of them are going, come on, come on, come on. And she's falling further and further back. She doesn't want to go. She's still reluctant. And in the end, she doesn't get far enough, and judgment overtakes her. That's what happened to Lot's wife. It wasn't God being petty. Judgment caught up with her because the urgency wasn't there. And so I go back to Luke 17, and Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. You ask, well, how do we apply this today? How do we apply this today? I mean, Lot and his family, there's a specific city that was getting judged, so their specific command was get out of that specific city. But we don't, it's not like there's a specific city Jesus is telling us to physically get out of. So what's our command? What's our Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. He wants us to do something about this, but what are we supposed to do about it? We don't have a specific city to run out of, so how do we remember Lot's wife and put this into practice? I'll tell you how we do it. Because you're right. Jesus certainly wants to apply Lot's wife, that story, to our lives. But obviously it's not in physically coming out of a city. So how do we do what Jesus is telling us to do? I'll tell you how we escape God's judgment today by refusing to compromise no matter the cost. By choosing faithfulness to Jesus and his word instead of seeking to keep our comforts and stuff in this culture. By seeking faithfulness to Jesus and his word instead of seeking to keep our comforts and stuff in this culture. Did you know that in the time leading up to Jesus' return, the pressure is going to get increasingly more and more and more and more? Already now, around the world, did you know right now, 200, 215 million Christian brothers and sisters, that's our family that we're going to spend eternity with, right now, more than ever before, by far more than ever before, 200 to 215 million Christians right now around the world are under severe persecution. Hundreds of millions more are under more minor persecutions and discrimination. 
Which is another thing I, I really have a hard time stomaching now is this whole theology that's kind of making its rounds in, in, in some circles in North America. It's, it's called victorious theology or victorious end times theology. It's this idea, and they're, they're all talking about we're just speaking in faith, we're speaking in faith, we're speaking in faith, and the whole thing is that things are gonna get better and better and better, and the church is gonna have more and more and more influence in the world until everything is super good, and then Jesus is gonna come back. Do you know that that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches in dozens and dozens and dozens of places? The Bible does not teach that things are going to get better and better and better and better, and then when it's good, Jesus is going to come back. The Bible teaches that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus is going to come back, and that's how things get better. We don't make things better. Jesus makes things better when he gets back. Now, there's a sense in which his spirit works through us, obviously, and, and we can bring some of it, you know, there's this now, not yet, where we bring some of the kingdom in onto the earth here through our love and our actions and all sort of stuff, but things are not going to get better and better and better. And if you think God only wants all the other hundreds of millions of Christians around the world to suffer and not us, you have another thing coming. And so we're going to see increasing pressure in our culture. That's, that's not a prophetic word. That's just reading the Bible. We're going to see increasing pressure in our culture. That if you want access to certain things, you want positions of influence and, and positions of power, you're going to have to agree with certain things. You're going to have to not believe certain things. We already see it now. Right now in our country, you want money from the summer jobs grant? You've got to sign off that abortion's okay. You don't think we're going to have more of that? We're going to have more and more and more and more. And you know what Jesus says? Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life in this world will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. And the point is, in the days before Jesus' return, it's going to be like the days of Noah and like the days of Lot. And Jesus is speaking to us and he's saying, do not give in. Amen? Now, some of you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, is this a fear message? No, this isn't a fear message. This is a boldness message. And there's a whole nother chapter, and just in case you think, wow, I'm glad he got through the end times thing, Jesus talks about it a lot. And we're going to come to it again in Luke 21. Can't you hardly wait? I'm not telling you which, which week I'm speaking on Luke 21. <laughs> but I'm going to leave you with a verse from Luke 21. Because you know what Jesus says? This isn't curl up and hide our heads in the sand time. This is stand up. Look at what Jesus says in, in Luke 21, 28. Speaking of a bunch of other terrible events that he talks about in Luke 21, he says this, now, when these things begin to take place, when these things begin to take place and the pressure goes up and they start asking you to affirm certain things and compromise with certain things, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus is the king of a real kingdom. And he's asking us to stand strong here and now so that we can rule with him in his real kingdom. And the Bible is full of stories of those who overcame in their lives with boldness and courage and perseverance. Daniels and Shadrachs and Meshachs and Abednegoes and Jesus himself and the disciples who stood strong in the face of opposition. Amen. When these things begin to take place, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes and let's ask Jesus to come back quickly. Amen. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you first of all today. I want to thank you for church renewal, which is our peace. We get to play a piece in the Great Commission of discipling the nations, mentoring and discipling pastors all over the world. We are helping usher in your return. 
And Jesus, we are not praying that you would slow down the Great Commission. We are praying that you would speed it up by your Holy Spirit because the quicker you come back, the better. And we, for one, are a church that is waiting for you to return and set up your real kingdom on earth, for you to put to rest sickness and death and injustice and disease. We are looking forward to the day when we can physically worship you in person here on this earth. And when all the earth will glorify your name and obey your commands, and all the nations will come up to Jerusalem and to Israel to hear you teach your laws and your words, we are looking forward to that day. Give us boldness. May we not be those, may we not at this church be of those who shrink back and fall away, but of those who stand strong until the end. May your words give us strength and boldness. In your precious and powerful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.